Welcome, welcome, welcome into Moments of Genius here on CMRU.ca by Students For You. My name is Peter Roman, and over the next hour, I will be going through some of the biggest moments in the world of sports, as well as previewing, at least for this week anyway, some of the biggest international soccer tournaments set to take place during the summer, which should be a whole lot of fun. My opening segment today is still the NBA Finals, mostly because the Toronto Raptors being there is historic in itself. So I'll start there. Game 1 and Game 2 have been played so far in this series, both games in Toronto, and the Raptors got Game 1, which was very impressive to say the least. Pascal Siakam, I mean, if he's had a better game in his basketball life, I mean, I I would like to see it because he just couldn't be stopped. It felt like he didn't miss a single shot in the game. It really felt that way. Siakam led the way with 32 points for the Raptors. He went 14 of 17 from the field, which is just an absurdly good shooting percentage. I mean, it just really felt like anything Siakam threw up, it went in. Like, it didn't matter how good of defense that was played on the shot. It didn't matter the contest. It didn't matter the situation. It didn't matter what kind of shot, whether it was a hook shot, a layup, a dunk, a three. It didn't matter. It all basically went in for Siakam on the, in game number one of the NBA Finals. Not to be outdone, though. I know Siakam got all the praise out of game one's victory for the Toronto Raptors, but Mark Gasol, I mean, this was probably his best game as a Raptor as well. His defense was exceptional, 20 points for Gasol. He basically played as well as what Raptors fans have been kind of hoping he could play at for most of the postseason, and Gasol was all that and everything else in game number one. Kyle Lowry, despite a less than optimal shooting night, had a tremendous defensive night, and despite the only seven points he put up on the board, he had six crucial rebounds and nine assists. So he was more of a playmaker and more of the defensive stalwart in the game, but still very important nonetheless. Danny Green got going for them, and Fred Van Vliet. I mean, this guy's shooting almost 70% from three since he had his kid, uh, since game four of the Milwaukee series in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, that's just absurdly good. I can't... It's hard to put into words because I don't know if I've ever seen a player go from playing so badly where he was just a constant liability every time he was on the floor to now, I mean, he's just (laughs) unbelievable right now. Right now, he's playing like one of the best players maybe in the league with how good he's been over the last few games. So Fred Van Vliet certainly played a big role. And overall, I thought it was just a tremendous team effort by the Toronto Raptors. Their defense was great in the game. And for Golden State, I mean, yeah, Curry played okay in game number one. And I know that 34 points and five assists certainly isn't a bad stat line by any means. But The Raptors did a really good job of just trapping and forcing the ball out of Curry's hands. And one of the things I talked about in my preview, which was I think was big, was making Draymond Green that ball handler because he is prone to turnovers. 
And I was right, because Draymond Green had five turnovers in game number one, and Toronto, Toronto's defense certainly a big part in why that happened, but the biggest key was just you had to get it out of Curry's hands and into Green's, and it worked out very nicely for Toronto in game number one, which I, I'm not going to lie, the atmosphere in that game, I can only imagine what it was like, but through the TV it felt pretty pretty darn awesome because... It was the first ever NBA Finals game in Toronto, and considering that, with the exception of TFC, which is Toronto's soccer team, they won the championship a couple years ago, but with the exception of TFC, Toronto sports teams have typically been really bad, especially over the last couple decades. Like, they've been really, really bad. So, especially the Maple Leafs, but (laughs) that's a whole other discussion. The Raptors being as good as they are, I think, is just so special. And you can see there were over 25,000 packed into Jurassic Park for game number one, which is just unreal for a basketball team to be having this kind of impact. But this is this is really special. And seeing the Raptors win game one like they did, truly exceptional. And they fully deserved it. That, that was the other thing, too. It wasn't like they didn't deserve the game or they got lucky or anything. None of that. No, Raptors full-on deserved game one. They were the better team in the game, and as a result, they took a 1-0 series lead. Unfortunately, game two did not quite go the way they were hoping to. Golden State ended up winning at 109-104. to Certainly a lot of Raptors fans very upset at the officiating in this game, and granted, yeah, there were a lot of calls that they had a right to be, but... The biggest difference in this game, I'll read you the scores here. So these are the scores after each individual quarter. So the first quarter, Raptors actually won by one point. So they had 27 points to Golden State's 26. Then in the second quarter, Toronto actually won by four. So they had 32 points to Golden State's 28. In the fourth quarter, the Raptors won again. They had 24 points to Golden State's 21. The problem The third quarter. The third quarter, Golden State had 34 points to Toronto's 21. The Raptors basically came out of halftime ice cold, couldn't hit a single shot, and Golden State went on an 18-0 run. And I can't even blame, like, Nick Nurse for that because he called timeouts. Team just couldn't hit a shot, and then Golden State... I think the biggest thing in that third quarter is the Warriors turned on their excellence. Because when Golden State is playing at their peak level and they're moving the ball the way they do, nobody can stop them. It's not even close. It's unbelievable how good they are at passing, how selfless they are, and just Toronto could not deal with the fact that Cousins, Thompson, Curry, Green, and Iguodala were just a menace in that third quarter, their passing was on point, their shooting was on point, their defense was on point, and Toronto couldn't hit their shots. So, as much as the refereeing certainly wasn't ideal, necessarily, in Toronto's case, the third quarter was the big difference in this game. Because that was... Toronto won every other quarter. Toronto won every single other quarter in this game. But the third quarter, they lost, and they lost big. Because they just ran out of offense at the beginning of the second half. So, there's a lot of positives, I think, to take if you're the Raptors. But at the same time, the loss in this game is big. Because it's 1-1, and it's going back to Oracle. And 
the home crowd, the energy, the boost that the Raptors got at Scotiabank Arena won't be there. <laughs> It'll be there for Golden State, but not for Toronto. The one thing that might be in Toronto's favor, though, is injuries. Golden State right now are the walking wounded, literally. And if Toronto, if there was ever going to be a team to win against this dynasty, this is about as good a chance as anybody's ever going to have because Golden State have so many injuries right now. Clay Thompson got hurt, and he had to leave the game, did not finish the game in game number two. He has a hamstring injury that has him questionable for tonight. And there was, there was a report coming out about how apparently... Clay, like Clay Thompson is very determined to play in game number three, but the Golden State might not be so willing to let him. So we'll have to wait and see on that just because... There are reports that the Warriors medical staff are a little more concerned about Clay being healthy for games 4, 5, 6, and maybe 7, as opposed to game 3. DeMarcus Cousins, despite the fact that he was forced into playing 28 minutes, which they needed in game number 2, he's only very recently come back from injury, and you can tell he's still a little bit slow as far as his fitness level. Cousins played really well, though, in game number 2, but if you're Toronto... I mean, Cousins coming off an injury is certainly more ideal than a healthy, fully fit, fully healthy and fully in shape DeMarcus Cousins. Steph Curry's still playing with his dislocated finger, although, I mean, Kyle Lowry's playing with a thumb injury too, so I don't think that's impacting their games too, too much. Andre Iguodala, according to Rachel Nichols of ESPN, was limping all over the locker room last night. I mean, he's been playing with an injury the whole playoffs, so... The fact that Iguodala is still out there just giving it all for his team, I mean, I have to respect that 100%. And then Kevin Durant ruled out for Game 3. He's expected, actually, to be back for Game 4, but just like Cousins, when Durant comes back, we're not sure what shape he's going to be in. Like, is Durant going to be able to play at his peak level? Probably not. So, if you're Toronto... Toronto's team is mostly healthy right now. I mean, yeah, Leonard's dealing with a little bit of an injury right now. Lowry, like I said, a little bit of an injury. But when you compare that to the fact that... Oh, and Kevon Looney, I didn't even mention him. Looney suffered a collarbone injury, and I don't think he'll be back for the rest of the postseason. So with Looney out, with Klay Thompson hurt, with Cousins coming back from injury, with Kevin Durant going to be coming back from injury, and those two probably not being 100%, with Iguodala playing, you know, just playing on willpower at this point, I mean, injuries are certainly in the favor of the Toronto Raptors right now. And Game 3, especially if Klay Thompson doesn't play, will be very important if the Raptors want to win their first ever NBA Finals. But that's pretty much it. That's all I have to say about the NBA Finals. Game 1, Game 2, very close games, very fun games. And I hope to see more of that at Oracles for Game 3 and Game 4. And back at Scotiabank Arena, because there will be a minimum of five games in this series. So Toronto will get to host another Finals game. Coming up in my show today, I have UEFA Champions League Final to recap, as well as some Stanley Cup Final games to recap as well. I'm previewing the Copa America, getting set to take place just over a week from now. And the Women's World Cup, I will have my bracket for that one. I previewed the Women's World Cup a week ago, so if you want to check out the playlist, you can do that. 
And this week, it's my bracket and who I think will win the whole thing. And that'll come up later in the show. For right now, I have my first music break of the day. The first song is Aerosmith and Sweet Emotion. CMRU.ca By students, for you.
CMRU has something for everyone with nearly 40 different shows. Sports, hip-hop, rock, pop, country, jazz, brand new music, oldies that are goldies. Anything you want, it's all on CMRU.ca. By students, for you. Welcome back to Moments of Genius here on CMRU.ca by students for you. My second segment today is kind of too split for time purposes. So I'm going to talk about the Stanley Cup final and the UEFA Champions League final and just go over both of them a little bit here just because I have previews to get to for the international soccer tournaments getting set to take place. The Women's World Cup starts this week and the Copa America starts next week. So I'm very excited about those two tournaments that I will be I'll be able to talk about all summer. Well, okay, not all summer long, but, you know, until mid-July, anyway. So, I'll start with the UEFA Champions League final that took place over the weekend. Liverpool versus Tottenham. All-English affair for the first time in over a decade. And Liverpool were the champions of the UEFA Champions League. They won their sixth European Cup in their history. 2-0 win over Tottenham. Divock Origi scored the game's ceiling goal. Mohamed Salah scored the game opening goal in the first minute of the game when Spurs were called for a handball. Honestly, though, that's pretty much the excitement of this game. There wasn't a whole lot more into this. It was a very boring game, which I was really upset about because these two teams actually play really attack-minded soccer. It's just... They didn't on the day. Like, Liverpool kind of tried to... Like, they were still pressing and stuff, but, like, the passing in this game was really bad, and Spurs looked very defensive and very conservative, cagey. Like, it was weird to see, because Pochettino is a Bielsa disciple, and for those of you who don't know what that means, Marcelo Bielsa is probably the most influential coach in the modern game, just period, but... His philosophy is all about attacking and scoring goals and you're going to outscore the other team and we're going to press hard and all that stuff. Pochettino, his team set up defensively and they didn't really ever look like threatening Liverpool until late in the game and then Allison was forced into some good saves. But that's pretty much it. Like, I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot in this game, to be honest. Liverpool were the better team, and they have been the whole season, but it's just Tottenham didn't really look like they tried that much. Like, this felt, it didn't feel like a Champions League final. It felt like a preseason friendly, and Tottenham really didn't look, and this was just me watching on the field, they didn't really have that desperation that you'd expect out of a major final. They look like a team that's like, eh, we're down one nothing. I mean, whatever, you know. It happens. We're, you know, we, we might lose this game, but whatever. That's what it felt like to me. Like, they had a, such a relaxed and just non-serious manner to them in the way they played and the way they didn't press. They didn't really, like, force the issue until late. Like, it was, it was really unfortunate to watch just because I expected a lot more out of Tottenham. Even though I don't like Spurs very much, I, I was very upset that they didn't play anywhere close to what their potential is. So, anyway, congratulations to Liverpool. They won their sixth European Cup. And for Salah especially, redemption after last year. And he got injured. 
against Sergio Ramos and Real Madrid. So, And for Liverpool, it's kind of cool just because they had such an amazing season. And even though they didn't win the Premier League, they were more than deserving of winning it. It's just Manchester City and Liverpool had historically good seasons. So to see Liverpool come away with a major trophy, I think, is pretty cool. And ultimately, I think it's a sign of a power shift in Europe because... For many years, I've been of the belief that La Liga in Spain has been the best league in the world because I think they're top 10 with how they did in the European competitions. Like, I'm not just talking about Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atletico, which are the big teams, but I'm talking about Malaga and Sevilla and Valencia and Villarreal. And all these different teams have all had some kind of success at the European level, where it's whether it's the Europa League or the Champions League, something like that. So I, I've thought Spain has had the best league in the world for the last several years. I think England has taken it back. And with Liverpool-Tottenham being the Champions League final, with Arsenal-Chelsea being the Europa League final, I think there has definitely been a power shift from Spain back to England as far as which league has the best teams in the world. Okay, that's pretty much all I have to say. On to the Stanley Cup Final. I did not talk about this last week because only one game had been played. And I didn't... Well, okay, you can't judge a whole lot off one game. It's really hard to do that because you end up with awful predictions like a certain analyst on ESPN can attest to and his team won game one and then proceeded to lose four in a row after he kind of jinxed them. So... There's now been four games played in the Stanley Cup Final, and, well, I'm not really surprised at all. The series is 2-2. Two to two. Boston won game one by a 4-2 to two score at home, and St. Louis were able to bounce back and get a massive win in overtime, and that set the way for St. Louis having home ice until Boston just completely annihilated them. It was 7-2 to two in game number three. The Bruins just completely owned them. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the only word I can think of right now because St. Louis, and I get that Bennington has been so good for them. The St. Louis goalie, Jordan Bennington, he's been amazing for them this postseason. This was easily just a... It's one of those burn-the-tape games where St. Louis were so bad that there's no way they could be that bad again type of thing. So... And they weren't, because they bounced back in one game four, four to two. So St. Louis now have two wins in the Stanley Cup Final in their history, because this is only the second time they've ever made it to a Stanley Cup Final. However, the first time they got swept. So they now have two wins, and they find themselves in a best of three, essentially, with the series tied 2-2 and going back to Boston for game number five. In series that are tied 2-2, the winner of game five usually wins the series. So... I'm not saying a Stanley Cup champion is going to be crowned with the winner of Game 5, but there's a chance of that, and it feels really close to me, because I know like Game 1 was close, Game 2 was close, Game 4 was close, Game 3 was a blowout, but I don't feel like Game 3 is a proper representation of what this series has been, so it's going to be really fun, because I think both teams should feel confident that, you know what, they can win this Stanley Cup this year. I'm still kind of rooting for St. Louis just because I think they'd be the cooler story. 
My prediction was Bruins in six, which could still happen if Boston win the next two games. But we'll have to wait and see on that. It's It's been a really entertaining series as far as with the exception of game three of course because game three was just not even it was never a contest but i don't know i i think regardless of whoever wins they will be more than deserving of being stanley cup champions for sure and st louis i mean they just need they need a little more production out of their big players, and Boston, kind of the same thing. Because this is the thing, is that by this point in the playoffs, everyone's kind of hurt, especially in the NHL, because hockey's just kind of a relentless sport. But if you can get a little more out of your best players for these last two or three games, then you'll win the series. So, should be very fun. Game 5, very, very important game. And, yeah, maybe this will be the year St. Louis win their first ever cup. Maybe Boston will win for the first time since 2011. That's the end of my Stanley Cup final segment. I combined the two of them today again for time purposes, because in the second half of my show, it's all previews for the international soccer tournaments taking place. I have a Copa America preview with that tournament just um, getting set to start just over a week from now, as well as the Women's World Cup bracket of mine that I will make predictions for. And a little bit of a teaser is that I actually correctly predicted the Men's World Cup winner back in December. Not to toot my own... Well, actually, it is kind of to toot my own horn. But essentially, in my in my old radio show that I used to do in my first semester here, I said France would win the World Cup in December. And then I stuck with that for last year when I made my bracket for the Men's World Cup. So... I'm not saying that I'm going to get the Women's World Cup winner correct, but certainly, I mean, I would like to. That would look good if I could do that. But it should be it should be a whole lot of fun. The Women's World Cup, there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of parody, I think, that hasn't been seen in the game before this year, or at least in the last, like, decade or so. The parody, I don't think, is quite as large as it is right now but anyway i'll get to that all coming up after my next music break i have just the one song backstreet boys and i want it that way be yourself enjoy listening to any songs on cmru.ca by students for you My fire, the one desire, believe when I say I want it that way. But we are two worlds apart, can't reach to your heart. Say that I want it that way. 
fire, the one desire you are. Don't wanna hear you fade out. Don't wanna hear you say. Don't wanna hear you say. Oh yeah. I want it that way. Tell me why ain't nothing but a mistake. Tell me why ain't nothing but a mistake. Tell me why I never wanna hear you say I want it that way. Cause I want it that way. CMRU.ca by students for you. Welcome back into Moments of Genius here on CMRU.ca by students for you. I'm into the second half of my show previewing the international soccer or football tournaments coming up, specifically the Copa America and the Women's World Cup. I know there are two other international soccer tournaments as well in the Africa Cup of Nations, which is taking place for the first time during this era or during this time, I should say. Anyway, the Africa Cup of Nations usually takes place during uh, what, at least in North America, is our winter time. So, like, January and February is usually when AFCON takes place. But this year, it's taking place during the same time as the Copa America. So, it's also been expanded, too, to 24 teams. And at the Africa Cup of Nations is actually really intriguing. There's a lot of good players, a lot of good teams in that tournament. But... The reason why I'm not focusing on that one quite as much as the Copa America or the Women's World Cup is just purely because the Africa Cup of Nations doesn't quite have the prestige, in my opinion. Like, winning that tournament I don't think is quite as significant as winning the Copa or winning the Women's World Cup. So, I'll probably talk about the Africa Cup of Nations a little bit, especially once they get to the knockout stages and stuff like that. But I certainly won't be doing a whole ton on that tournament in comparison to the other two. If I had to give a favorite, though, Senegal would be my favorite to win the whole thing. Egypt are hosting it, which means they would definitely be a threat, especially with Mohamed Salah trying to win it on home soil. But I just love Senegal's team. I think they have a ton of talent in that team. Mane up front is coming off maybe his best season as a professional footballer. You got Koulibaly in the back. I mean... They were, they were probably the best African team in the World Cup, at least in my opinion. So that's, so that's one of the tournaments. The other international tournament that takes place is the Gold Cup. But, and I really urge this, and I can't, I never thought I would say ever to not watch like a soccer tournament, but don't watch the Gold Cup. Don't watch it. Watch Africa Cup of Nations, watch the Women's World Cup, or watch the Copa America. Don't watch the Gold Cup. The Gold Cup had some meaning back when the Confederations Cup still existed, but with FIFA getting rid of the Confederations Cup in 
like in exchange for a club super cup that's going to take place instead in 2021 there's really not any point in watching the gold cup anymore because the u.s and mexico send like they don't send their best players to that tournament anyway they send b teams most of the time and the lack of star power the lack of storylines the lack of prestige is just the gold cup really doesn't have a lot of excitement around it so if you're gonna watch international soccer this summer which i recommend everybody should watch the copa america or the women's world cup or the africa cup of nations or both or all three just because those are the tournaments with prestige with star power with intrigue with cool storylines the gold cup just doesn't have that so anyway that's a short little spiel on that I'm going to start with my Copa America preview. I'll have my actual Copa America bracket next week with the tournament just over a week away. So I'll have that next week. However, I will have my actual preview of what the tournament's about and stuff like that today. So the Copa America is, for those of you who don't know, it's the major men's international tournament that takes place in South America between the South American teams. You can think of it as the South American Championship, essentially as a simple way of thinking about it. But the Copa America takes place this summer in Brazil. Brazil are hosting the tournament. They were actually supposed to host the 2015 version, and Chile was supposed to host the 2019 version. But because Brazil hosted the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics, they they elected to swap with Chile. So Chile hosted in 2015, and then Brazil are now hosting in 2019. The Copa America is a 12-team tournament this summer, with all 10 South American sides in the tournament, alongside two guest nations. Now, traditionally, one of the guest nations has always been Mexico, but with the Gold Cup getting moved up as far as its timeline this year, Mexico elected not to come, and so the two guest nations this year are Japan and Qatar. Japan have taken place in one previous Copa America back in the earlier part of the century, Qatar, this will be their first ever Copa America, and I'm not surprised that Qatar won the Asian Cup, so I'm not that surprised they got an invite, but because they won't be playing any actual competitive matches until the World Cup for them, which I I have a whole, whole massive issue with Qatar hosting the World Cup, but that's a that's a discussion for a different time. I, for any of you who listened to my show last summer, I talked about that after the World Cup finished in Russia. But anyway, Qatar will be at the Copa America this year, alongside Japan as the two guest nations. The 12-team tournament, the way that it works is that there are three groups of four teams each. The top two teams from each group will advance to the quarterfinals, alongside the two best third-place finishers. Which kind of makes it a little hard to make predictions about but either way i'm gonna try nonetheless anyway a little history about the copa america it's actually the oldest international soccer tournament that exists it predates the world cup as the first ever copa america took place in 1916 the first ever world cup took place in 1930 so the copa america is actually the oldest international tournament which is kind of cool in its own right is that it has so much history to it Chile, for those of you who don't know, one of my countries, because I'm half Finnish, half Chilean. Chile, one of my countries, they are the two-time defending champions of the Copa America. They won on home soil in 2015, 
and repeated the feat a year later in the Copa America Centenario in 2016. That was a traditional, or that was a tradition, 100-year tournament that took place in the United States with 16 teams. It was kind of a special one-off thing, although, I don't know, the future of the Copa America is interesting, but I that's a discussion for a different radio show, not today. Today, I'm talking about this tournament this year right now. So, the teams, the favorites. Obviously, the host Brazil have to be among the favorites, although there's a whole massive story with Brazil. I will get to that in a minute just because I want to be very clear and concise with what I say about that. But anyway, Brazil are certainly a favorite as the hosts. Chile, being the two-time defending champions, are a favorite in my opinion, although for the Chileans, it's more about can they recapture the form that people know they can play at because the Chilean team to say the least, has gone on hard times after they missed the World Cup, especially with their star players, because the golden generation, they're not the same that they were four years ago. Alexis Sanchez is coming off his worst season ever, maybe as a professional. I mean, he was just... When he wasn't hurt, he was terrible for Manchester United this season. And Arturo Vidal has become a bench player for Barcelona. Isla's not the player he was four years ago, like, Medell's not the player he was, Claudio Bravo's not on the team right now, because he's hurt, like, there's a lot of question marks around the Chilean team, they're certainly more than capable of, you know, finding that magic that helped lead them to two wins at this tournament, but it's, they're, they're gonna have to find a little bit of a fountain of youth, because, this team has certainly gone on difficult times over the last year or so. Argentina is another favorite, and that's mainly because Messi's actually going to play in this tournament. I was surprised to hear about that. I didn't think Messi... Because Messi, after Argentina lost in 2016, he temporarily retired before coming back and then playing at the World Cup last year. But I thought he wouldn't... I thought the World Cup would be it for him. But I guess not. Messi is still on the team. And even though Messi hasn't ever really lived up to the level that he should internationally, he's still, you know, Messi. And he's still a top five player of all time. So Argentina will certainly be a favorite in this tournament to win the whole thing. Colombia is the next team I have as a favorite as well. Colombia made the round of 16 at the World Cup. They got kind of unlucky just because Colombia, their best player is James Rodriguez, who basically every time he puts on the national team jersey, he is a different player. He is just unreal for Colombia. And so they, Colombia were semifinalists in 2016, and they will be, I think, certainly hoping to try and win the Copa America this year. The other team that I would have put in the contender category, but I'm going to leave them out for now, is Uruguay. And I'll explain why. Uruguay, under normal circumstances, would certainly be a contender for this tournament. But the problem for Uruguay is they're way too reliant on a couple players. One of them, the main one, being Luis Suarez. Suarez is hurt right now. He had to get knee surgery as he ended up missing the last part of the season for Barcelona. So... Suarez says that he's going to be ready for the Copa America, 
but it's going to be really tight against the clock as far as when he's going to be fit. And even when he comes back from injury, just like I was talking about in the NBA Finals, just because you get cleared to play doesn't mean you're at your peak. Because Suarez coming back from injury, he might not be fully fit. He might be, like, on the fatigue side. Like, there's... He might not be the Luis Suarez that we've come to know and expect if he's, you know, coming off an injury is essentially the point I'm trying to make. And unfortunately for Uruguay... Like, I wish I could say that they'd still be a contender without him, but they're not. Not in any way. Uruguay's record, so this is their record without Suarez at either a World Cup or a Copa America since 2014. They have two wins, one draw, and six losses. That is not a contender. That is a very below average, you know, pretty bad team. And they have other good players on that team, but it's just, they're so reliant on Suarez and Godin and Cavani. And if they miss one of them, it's really hard to win without one of them. So, anyway, Uruguay would be a contender if Suarez is healthy, but I can't put them there because I don't know if they will be. My dark horses for the Copa, Peru, certainly. They made the World Cup at Chile's expense, unfortunately. But Peru will be a dark horse, I think. Paraguay could be a dark horse at this tournament as well. They made the... Peru and Paraguay both made the semifinals in 2015. So, there'll be teams to keep an eye on. Ecuador and Japan, I also have under the Dark Horse category, just because I think these teams have enough quality that they can make a deep run, but maybe aren't necessarily expected to. And then finally, the Cinderella category, the team that could make a Cinderella run out of nowhere. Venezuela is the only team I realistically put in this category. And Venezuela's is mainly because... There are times where sport can transcend what happens in a country. And with Venezuela, with all the turmoil going on in that country, maybe the national team can be a unifying force, even if it's just temporary, even if it's just for a week or two. Something that they can rally around and maybe Venezuela can make a run all the way. Well, not all the way, but like, you know, a semifinal run or something. So, Venezuela are the team I have in the Cinderella category. On to Brazil now. I know I said I would come back to them. So, Brazil normally would be an overwhelming favorite when you look at their team. But there has been very troubling allegations made against Neymar, the, well, I guess former captain. He got stripped of that before this happened. But Neymar is probably Brazil's best player. And... So, there has been a allegation, an accusation of rape that was made by a woman against Neymar a few weeks ago. So, this is something that is still under investigation, and I don't want to make any assumptions or anything like that, but it's certainly, regardless of, you know, like, obviously, Brazilian police are investigating and stuff like that, and... You know, that should be given time to do that. But this is a cloud that hangs over the team. And there are conflicting reports coming out today about Neymar's status for Brazil because according to... I'm on uh, Sportstar, the website, and the Brazilian vice president of... Brazilian vice president of, like, their football uh, federation, he said that he doesn't think 
Neymar, and I quote here, he doesn't have the psychological conditions to face a Copa America and a battalion of journalists, end quote. So there's that. And then there's the Brazilian president of their football federation saying that there is, quote, no chance of Neymar not taking part in the Copa America. I'm really not sure what to read into any of that because those are conflicting. But it, this is something that I think Brazil should be very concerned about because regardless of, you know, the allegations themselves, which certainly we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But, uh, but they, need to be, they need to be t- taken very seriously. And this is something that will hang over the team because they're going to get asked questions about this every single day. And it's not just Neymar, but it's the whole team because the whole team, they're under a ton of pressure to win this tournament. And this is just a massive distraction that I think will work very negatively against the Brazilian national team. It doesn't mean they can't win the tournament, but Neymar is their best player. And this is certainly... For Tite, the Brazilian coach, this is not something that him or any of the other players want to deal with. Like, this should be something that's only dealt with by Neymar, but it can't because Brazil is playing in the Copa America and Brazil's under all this pressure and he's their best player. And it's just, there is a whole lot of, I'm trying to think of a good word for this. A whole lot of, I guess, distractions with this. So, anyway, that's that's pretty much my thought on Brazil. They're still a favorite to me, but the gap is certainly not very big in comparison to the other favorites to win the whole tournament. So, that's pretty much all I have to say about the Copa America. I'll preview the Women's World Cup with my bracket and who I think will win in my next segment. For right now... Just the one song in my music break. It's LaRue and Bulletproof. You're listening to CMRU.ca by students for you.
listening to cmru.ca. By students, for you. Welcome back to Moments of Genius here on cmru.ca. I'm into my final segment of the day, and that is my FIFA Women's World Cup bracket. So, first of all, before I get started, this is a really hard tournament to predict. Not just because of the fact that any tournament's hard to predict, but the Women's World Cup's format makes it very difficult because there are four group, sorry, six groups of four teams each. The top two teams advance to the round of 16, and then the four best third-place teams also advance to the round of 16. Trying to predict the best third-place teams is damn near almost impossible. I mean... You know, it's one thing to say that, oh, I think this team's going to be first place. It's another thing to say, I think this team's going to be third place, and this team's going to be third place, and this team is going to be better than that third place team, because they won't, like, lose as much or something. So, essentially what I'm saying is that if I get my third place teams wrong, I'm not going to be very upset, because I'm kind of expecting to get almost all, if not, like, almost all, if not all of them wrong. So, we'll see. But anyway, I'll get started. Group A. Group A is really tough because I have France finishing first. And, th- I mean, that's not really a, that much of a surprise. France being the host. They're one of the favorites to win the whole thing. South Korea are a really good team. Norway are a good team, but missing their best player. And that's very unfortunate. I wish Hegerberg could be at this tournament just because she is, at least for a lot of people, the best women's player in the world. She's the reigning Ballon d'Or winner, too. Nigeria are the African champions, too. And if there's an African team that could surprise people in this tournament. It's probably Nigeria. So that made predicting the rest of this group really tough. But I opted to go, and I went back and forth on this, but I'm going to go with South Korea for second place and Norway for third place in Group A with Nigeria finishing in fourth. Second through fourth could easily be any order, though. So I, I want to stress that, that, like, even though this is what I think will happen, it's certainly I would not be surprised if Nigeria was second, for example. Anyway, Group B. I have Germany finishing in first place. In second place, I have Spain with third place in third place being China, and then fourth place, South Africa. Spain and China are two teams that I think could easily flip-flop as far as second and third place. It was very difficult to pick between these two sides. Spain are the more emerging team, though, and I think... Considering the tournaments in Europe, I'm going to give them the slight advantage over China. In Group C, I have Brazil winning the group with Australia in second place, Italy in third, and Jamaica in fourth. Group D, I went really back and forth on this, but I'm going to go England first over Japan, which might be a little surprising considering Japan are the fi- were the finalists in 2015 and champions of 2011, but... I almost feel like England are just going to get off to a good start and then might falter a little bit later on. But I have England first, Japan second, Scotland in third, and Argentina in fourth. Group E, I have Canada finishing in first, Netherlands in second, New Zealand third, and Cameroon in fourth. With Group F then, the United States in first, Sweden in second, I have Chile in third, and Thailand in fourth. So, Norway, China, Italy, Scotland, New Zealand, and Chile are all my third place teams. And so I had to pick four of those three, sorry, four of those six to advance to the knockout round. 
I ended up picking China, Norway, Chile, and Italy as my third place teams. I could be completely wrong about that. And I mean, I'm fully expecting kind of to be fully wrong on those third place selections because it's damn near impossible to know whether or not they're actually going to finish ahead of another team. But anyway, round of 16. So with those third place teams into my round of 16, my knockout bracket looks like this. On the left-hand side, South Korea plays Australia. I have Australia winning that one and advancing to the quarterfinals. England plays Chile on the same side of that bracket in the round of 16. I have England winning that one and advancing to the quarterfinals. I would love for Chile to go farther than that, but they're first-time debutants at the Women's World Cup. And even though certainly Christian Endler and goal will give them at least a fighting chance, I think, in most games. England are one of the top women's teams in the world, semifinalists in 2015, semifinalists at the European Championships. I think they will be too much. France versus Italy is the next round of 16 match. I have France winning that one. And then Spain versus the United States. I have the U.S. winning that one. Setting up the quarterfinals on the left-hand side as Australia versus England and France versus the United States, which has to be the absolute biggest heavyweight quarterfinal game maybe ever in a women's world cup anyway on to the right hand side round of 16 brazil versus china i have brazil winning that one and advancing to the quarters canada versus japan very close match very tight i went with canada and there's probably bias in that opinion but i went with canada to beat japan in the round of 16 germany versus norway is the next round of 16 match i have germany winning that one and then sweden versus netherlands another really close one I opted to go with the European champions, the Netherlands, into the quarterfinals. So, back to the left-hand side. Australia versus England. I have Australia winning and advancing to the, se- advancing to the semifinals. And then France, United States. I went really back and forth on this. I picked the U.S. I actually originally picked France, and then I changed my mind. So, I have the United States going to the semifinals. On the right-hand side, Brazil versus Canada is the quarterfinal match. I have Canada winning that one and going to the semifinals. And Germany versus the Netherlands, I have Germany winning and advancing to the semis. So, Australia versus the United States, I picked the U.S. to win and go to the finals. And then Germany versus Canada, I picked Germany to win and go to the final. So the final that I have is USA versus Germany. I have Germany winning the FIFA Women's World Cup. And as long as they play the opposite of what their men's team did at the Men's World Cup a year ago, I think the women's team will be just fine. The third place team, because I had to pick one, I'll pick Canada. And that's purely a biased pick because I've... Third place games are also impossible to predict because it's hard to tell what a team's mindset would be. So that is my FIFA Women's World Cup bracket. Germany to win. U.S. runner-up. Canada third. Australia in fourth one song to end the day imagine dragons whatever it takes thank you for listening and women's world cup gets started this week should be a whole lot of fun Too fast to prepare for this Tripping in the world could be dangerous Everybody circling as vultures Negative, nepotist Everybody waiting for the fall of man Everybody praying for the end of times Everybody hoping they could be the one I was born to run, I was born for this Whip, whip